Today is going to be a little different of an episode. You look back on the last month of the world and a lot has gone on with the coronavirus and it, you know it's not stopping. It's only picking up velocity. And I wanted to bring on someone to the podcast who is kind of in the weeds helping every which way that he can. And I wanted to bring him on to uh, kind of share his thoughts on how he can help and how anyone can help and kind of survive and thrive through this situation. So I am really excited to welcome Eric Reese. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing doing good. I'm I guess as well as one can be doing in these times. Yeah, well, I think I'm doing I'm doing good because I'm I just feel like in this situation, although it is horrible for so many people at the same time, you see kind of the heroes uh, come out and that, you know, whether they're doing big things, small things, little things like getting groceries, et cetera. But I'm seeing, I try to like position my Twitter feed to like optimize for seeing as many heroes as possible because there's obviously a lot of bad news to, to, to go around. Um, and you're one of these heroes, like you're one of these people, you know, that are helping as much as you can. Um, so to kind of to to start off the podcast, um, one of the biggest group of people that you know that needs help are early stage founders um, who have companies. Maybe they're well capitalized, maybe they're not. Um, but I would love your high level thoughts. Then we can dive deeper on how early stage founders, let's say Series A or earlier, should be thinking about prioritizing their business, their life, their mental state, uh, their are anything um, throughout this uh, throughout this crisis. Um, I guess I'll, I'll give you the floor and just kind of, if you were talking to an early stage founder now, like what would you tell them about prioritization? Well, I have had quite a few of these conversations over the past uh, days and weeks, unfortunately. You know, it's not the conditions under which you wanna be talking to an early stage founder. It's, uh, it's pretty intense. And this is not the first crisis that I have been through as an entrepreneur. So I have some experience with this, although I think there are people you know, who are even more experienced than I am. I remember from the financial crisis, which was different in that the human toll was, was not what we're about to see with, with COVID-19, but from an economic point of view, I think is, is a reasonable reference point. Um, that was when I was first starting to be known as the lean startup guy, you know, in Silicon Valley. And uh, people were like, oh, oh, lean startup guy, he probably can help me save money. Better call him up and people would be like, okay, so uh, how can I get out of this bad office lease? Or hey, can, you, can you help me sell off this uh, furniture, too expensive furniture I bought and now I need to get rid of it. And I was like, no, no, no. And I would try to give people a framework for deciding what are the costs that are really worth investing in and not. And the funny thing about that framework is it's actually not any different in a crisis than it is during the good times. It's just for a lot of us, we get sloppy in good times and sometimes a crisis can be clarifying. So every startup I think is facing a certain level of existential dread right now. And especially those startups that had a plan to raise money at any particular time, uh, it's very stressful. It's one of the reasons why having a plan to raise money is not a great plan. And I know this is funny to say this, you know, among venture-backed startups, we're always thinking about the next round. But the, the problem with having a plan to raise money at any specific time is you're having a plan for there not to be a financial crisis between now and then. And how can that be part of your plan? You don't know when these things are going to happen. That's the whole nature of black swan events. 
So the right thing to do whenever you can is to really understand your cost structure, uh, unit economics, business model, so that you can control your own destiny. And believe me, the companies who have a break-even uh, or profitable business right now are having a very different uh, conversation than the people who plan to raise money this year, which is very different in turn than the people who plan to raise money next year or the year after. So the top thing you have to do in a crisis from a priorities point of view is really, really decide what are your values? What do you stand for? Who are you? If you're a CEO, you're a founder, this is the time to look in the mirror and say, like, what am I really made of? Because a crisis is going to show your true colors. It's going to reveal to the people you work with and the people that you will be working with probably for many years to come. Even if your company fails, you may work with them in a future company. Uh, it may be your future investors. You may work for them. You don't know. But all those people are going to remember how you handled this crisis. And I know some founders who are finding that overwhelming or stressful. And you've got to find a way to remain calm yourself so that you can ask yourself, what, what, what do I really stand for? What do I believe? What would I be willing to do that I think is the right thing to do, even if it means my business fails? And to me, the very first one of those values at the top of everybody's list has got to be that human beings come first. This is an old Toyota production system saying respect for people. It's, you know, we put it into one of our uh, foundational principles at LTSE. Uh, I've been saying metrics are people too for all these years in Lean Startup. Like human beings are at the heart of what we do in business. And so the first value you got to honor is to, to really take care of the people who you interface with. And you can think about it kind of like Maslow's hierarchy. You know, you got to start with yourself and your own mental and physical well-being. You got to uh, then worry about your family then your friends, then your team, then your company. But I would, as you get stronger in those foundational pieces, as you do right by the people who are closest to you, I encourage every founder to really expand that circle of empathy out to your customers, to your suppliers, to your vendors, to your investors, to the gig workers on your platform, to the people that clean your building. You have an obligation to all of those people and they will remember how you act now. So the top priority, the reason it's a top priority from a business point of view, I mean, there's a moral obligation to do this, but the business uh, imperative here is that times of crisis are where you have the opportunity to invest in the relationships with people that will pay off for you as the crisis abates and prosperity returns. And that's been true of the greatest companies in history. Of course, I always talk about Toyota because I studied them extensively uh, in preparation for writing a lean startup. But, you know, they were very famous during downturns. They would have factories where orders would plummet to zero. So you have a whole factory full of people who can't make anything and sell anything because orders have, have fallen off a cliff. Uh, they would actually pay workers to keep coming into work. They wouldn't lay everybody in the factory off. They would pay everyone to keep coming into work and they would have them invest in improving the factory so that when orders resumed, they could be more efficient, more productive. And not only is that a smart investment for the long term, not only is that a good use of your balance sheet, but think of what that says to the people who you employ. You say, I'm not going to abandon you at the first sign of crisis. So yeah, that, that is the first and most overriding priority for any company, uh, really of any size, but especially for startups where what you stand for is ultimately your only asset. So you mentioned in there the, the Maslow hierarchy of needs, and it starts with your own, your own you know, physiological safety, mental safety. And uh, I know from my experience, when I've had a, a company 
and I have either felt stressed or emotional for, for you know, any emotion. I never, I don't make the best decision I could make. And yeah. I might think I am at, at that time, but a month later, I'm probably thinking, Matt, like, what, why did you do that? So in order for everything that you just said um, to, to work for a specific company or a specific founder, they need to start internally and kind of find their zen or find their calmness, at least as calm as they can be so they can make the right decisions. Do you have any tips on how founders can um, de-stress and just kind of like chill out a little bit internally mm-hmm. so they can then do what they need to do externally? I struggle with this myself immensely. So I, uh, I don't want to you know, give a false impression that this is easy. I'll tell you the things that I found the most helpful. The first is I really preach equanimity as one of the most important startup values for a leader. And the time to preach it is actually not in a crisis. It's during the good times. You ask people on my team, they can't stand it because anything good happens to the company. I always say, you know, I always say, well, let's, let's have equanimity. Let's not get too high in the good times and therefore not get too down on the bad times because the stuff that you get stressed about you don't even know if it's good or bad. This is the thing that if you've been around startups long enough, but when you're first in it, you cannot believe. And I, people gave me this advice and no, I didn't believe it. And I know you don't believe it too. But I'll just tell it to you because one day you'll realize, oh yeah, I see what he means. Um, you don't know what's good news. You don't know what's bad news. So for example, there's somebody listening right now who's stressed that their company will go out of business. And it will. But because of that, and they were, un- and then they're unemployed during a crisis, and then they're miserable, and then because of that experience, they found the next Uber. That's how Uber was started. You know, a lot of these companies were started in a crisis, were started because someone's other thing failed. So, uh, and I just I could do this all day. So, uh, people are like, oh my god, I I should have raised money, but I didn't. Now I'm forced to raise money on bad terms. So that's bad. But then you realize actually raising money on bad terms is a lot better than everybody else did because now no one can raise any money at all. And people who raised money like two months ago on bad terms are thrilled right now compared to the people who decided to hold out for better terms and now can't raise at all. So you're like, oh, so actually it was good news. But then actually the person you raised the money for is a total jerk and now he's on your board and dealing with him is like worse than going out of business. And so it was bad news. But then because he was a jerk, you know, so one of your other board members like steps up and helps you in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. And so that wound up making your company. And so it's good news. But oh, actually like uh, that, because you were doing temporarily well with that thing, you didn't pivot when you were supposed to. And so it's bad news. And just, you know, it, it, sounds, it sounds so silly when we talk about it this way, but that's really how this is. So the key to equanimity is to realize that you'll only understand what's good news in retrospect. Like now I can say the failure of my first startup during the dot-com crash was one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. But me going through that would never have believed that. And probably, I mean, I don't mean to minimize this crisis in any way because it's humanitarian toll is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen in our lifetimes and the economic carnage is going to be brutal to witness. But for many companies, this will be a moment where they get stronger and they will realize in retrospect, this wound up being good for them. And I bet there are people who will say, actually, this crisis brought us closer together or it was like, there's good things that can come out of seemingly bad events. So that's the, that's the thing I found the most helpful is to have that attitude that, uh, that you don't know, you don't know yet what this means. 
And so don't rush to have emotions and feelings about it. Allow the situation to play itself out. Try to understand it better. See what it's here to teach you. It kind of goes back to your first point where you said, what's the first thing you should do? And you said, look, look yourself and look, look in the mirror and say like, what kind of founder are you? What kind of person are you? Because even if the company goes down or succeeds or et cetera, like it's still you, like it's still whatever you do comes back to you and your values as a person, whatever company it's with. So I think that's a really powerful realization mm. to come, come by. And I, I've had one personal cycle where I had a company, it did, I got a great investor, things were going great. And then all of a sudden all kind of fell downhill and you know, it was pretty horrible for about three months, but I landed at a company called Prenda, which I know you're familiar with, but now I'm like, could not be more happy with my, with, with what kind of happened. So looking back, it was all good news, but you know, it's just what you're saying is very true. And I've experienced it once and I feel like I'll experience it again. You know, that's, that's how life many, works. Many times. Listen, I, I'm an investor in Prenda and I, I'm a big believer in what you're doing now, but maybe later you'll realize, oops, like if only I had done something, you know, if that, if that hadn't happened, then maybe something, you know, just, you never know. I, I'll just give you one more, one more story from my life. One of the most important things that I ever did, and this was not during a crisis or anything. This was like a personal crisis. I, was, uh, I had a startup with, uh, with a few co-founders and, and the company was doing well. So it was starting to grow. Maybe we had, I think we'd done a series A, had 20 employees, maybe 30 employees. So it was starting to get to the point where we had a real board. People were like, there were stakes now. It wasn't just me and my silly team, but like now I mean, I was the CTO. I was a technical co-founder. And I remember I had, this is before Lean Startup. So no one had ever heard of phrases like minimum viable product or build, measure, learn or pivot. I, I was all in the future still to coin those phrases. And so I would go to these meetings and I would talk about continuous deployment or what we would now call innovation accounting or even split testing. And those things were very controversial. People didn't really understand them. And, you know, my co-founders were very indulgent of me, very tolerant of me, but like it was difficult for them. They didn't really understand why I thought things should be done a certain way. And our investors also didn't really understand. So there was enormous pressure on the company to normalize and to do product requirements documents and technical requirements documents and slow down and do water, like do kind of a more waterfall style uh, delivery. And because we were doing something unusual, whenever something went wrong, it would always get blamed on me and my unusual beliefs, whether that was fair or not. And so it was getting, it was, the issue was coming to a head and we were having a board meeting, we were preparing for the board meeting and there was a lot of pressure on us to conform. And I, I had this moment where I had to look myself in the mirror, just like I was talking about a second ago. And I said, okay, what do I really stand for? Like, what, what are the cost benefits of either going along to get along or stand for what I actually believe and say it out loud? Consequences be damned. And I realized that actually what was most important to me was to speak the truth as I saw it, no matter what. That's like one of my personal values is just commitment to the truth. That's like, the, that's what underlies, you know, not just the scientific method, but, but really all personal codes of ethics, in my opinion. So I said, all right, you know what? Here's how I could rationalize this to myself. I'm going to go into that meeting, and I'm just going to tell them what I actually think is the right thing to do. And I accept that one of the consequences of doing that is that they might want to replace me. They might say, you know what? This is no longer... Um, this is no longer the person we want to lead engineering for this company. It's outgrown, you blah, 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 blah. And I would accept that. Like I, I, you know, that, that could happen, but my job's not the most important thing to me. 
my reputation is more important to me than my job. And one day in the future, even if they fire me, one day in the future, one of those people is going to be in a situation where like, oh man, it's a crisis. Who can we get that really believes in going fast no matter what? Getting customers involved no matter what? Design-centric no matter what? And they're like, you remember that guy we fired? Well, uh, like, but at least we know what he stands for. He's the guy to call for that. So like one day, you know, they'll know. I, like that's my thing. I will go to the mat for those values, for those principles, no matter the consequences. And now I'll build a reputation for that. People will know it. And of course, in this particular situation, I didn't get fired. It was okay. But it was very tense. And they could have been because I had to say, look, if you want me in this job, we're going to do it this way. You can replace me if you want, but you can't tell me to do it a way that I think is wrong because you're going to fire me anyway because it's not going to work. And then you're going to blame me for it not working. And that's just, you know, that's the way of the world. You are accountable for results. And that made a really positive impression, even on the people that disagreed with me, that I had articulated my case so clearly that I had stood for what I believed. And listen, because I wound up later building an entire, you know, personal brand and life around these principles and around Lean Startup, like that's how it all started really. So I realized that even though that was a frightening moment, even though that I was afraid of the bad things that would happen, it turned out to be really good for me. I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. So we're looking at, you know, if I scan on my Twitter feed, I'll see that, you know, Amazon, Facebook, um, you know, Google, all, all these giant companies um, are helping. They're, they're putting towards, you know, a lot of resources to, to help, whether it's like masks or computing power. I'm not sure exactly specifically what they're doing, but I know I've seen a lot from all of them. But what is the responsibility of some of these series A and the earlier companies, is, is their sole responsibility stay in business or do they also have a responsibility to help? And if so, like how can they help when they don't have as big of an impact as like potentially a Facebook or Google? Uh, you know, I guess, how do you think about that for the earlier stage companies? Yeah. So let's talk about our responsibilities. First and foremost, you know, we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy the very first responsibility of every company, large or small, is to support social distancing in this crisis. I think pretty much everyone knows this already, but just in case, if there's anyone on the call is like, oh, that's not that important, I can still go, like, no. You have a responsibility right now, not only to practice this yourself, but to make sure your team is practicing it and to lobby your public officials for um, uh, extreme social distancing measures. There are states and cities that are still not at shelter in place in the United States, which is unconscionable given the rate of uh, mortality and spread that we are seeing. Um, you can text COVID-19 to 50409. That's the ResistBot uh, team. They have a, uh, a flow that they'll walk you through. You can see what the restrictions that are in place in your jurisdiction are. And if it's not adequate, they will help you uh, contact the officials that need to be lobbied. You can do that no matter what your size, and everyone has to do this. You know, if you look at the stats, um, you know, go check out Stop the Spread or any of these websites, uh, you know, uh, uh, Stop COVID Now. The models are brutal. For every infection we prevent today, we save 2,600 infections in three months. And if you haven't looked at flattenthecurve.com, you don't understand why we're trying to delay these infections, that this is a critical, critical time. We have only days to prevent our um, hospitals and heroic first responder infrastructure from being totally overwhelmed uh, and, and unleashing a catastrophe the likes of which we cannot, we cannot comprehend. So that is your first and foremost responsibility and you need to do that. Once you've done that, then we can start to think about how do we take care of the people that we are responsible for. 
a lot of you who have investors have heard from your investors recently urging immediate layoffs and cost reductions. And the people who are not urging you to do that probably haven't lived through one of these cycles before. Because it is true from an investment point of view, the companies that take early and decisive action to right-size their cost structure uh, are more likely to survive than others. And that is cruel. It's a cruel world we live in. And so the first thing is, you, if you're going to put people first, you have to commit to be really transparent and honest with your team. And if you have to make reductions to do it in the most compassionate way possible, where you really take care of those people. But another aspect of compassion and service that you can do to your employees right now is to provide secure employment. Psychologically, it is very, very, very stressful to not know if you're going to have a job, if you have a place or not. So the reason to right size and to get really clear about your financial picture is so that those people who you can afford to hold through this period, you can be honest with them and say, listen, I will not abandon you. Like we are in this together. Let's figure out how to make this work. So do that exercise now. Do not put it off. There's a bunch of tools that can help you. Uh, LTSE makes a bunch. There's startuprunway.io. There's hiringplan.io. Uh, captable.io are all tools that can help you kind of think through the consequences of financing and cash runway and uh, the burn rate you're going to have with employees and stuff. So you got to do that. Do not outsource this to somebody else. Do not trust somebody else's analysis. Do not be like the guy uh, from the TV show Silicon Valley where there's like a whole joke where there's an investor who's like, you don't even know how your own bleeping company works. Like, don't be that guy. Understand this stuff. Don't have a CFO do it for you. Don't have a controller do it for you. Do it yourself. Then you can start to think about, all right, let's say you discover that you, you are not in a sustainable place. You, you can't raise money for whatever reason and you don't have enough revenue to cover your shortfalls and your, your company is now headed for, I, I think if you, if you discover you have less than 18 months of runway and when you do this analysis, now you have a, I would consider that to be a crisis level problem, a business crisis. I don't want to confuse it with the humanitarian crisis. And I would urge urgent action. So let's say you find that out. Oh no, it's terrible. Well, there are two ways to stop a business shortfall. You can um, reduce your costs, but you could also increase your revenues. So I really think the first and foremost thing to do is to give yourself a limited time window to try and right size with your current team. I'm not talking about more than a week or two. Most people can't afford more than that. But even a week, even two weeks, you'll be amazed how scarcity focuses the mind. And you may be willing to build MVPs and ship them that you just weren't willing to do before. I mean, in the good times when founders call me for advice and they're working on this product, I mean, I just talked to someone, a heartbreaking story. I talked to a founder who's working on an app that has to do with um, distance, uh, distance learning and relationships. And it's like perfect product for a world where everyone is stuck at home and can't leave the house and it's not shipped. And I was like, oh, that's so painful. And they were working on it for six months. And I was like, are you going to rush it out? And they're like, no. I was, they were like, I, I wish it was done, but it's not. So, oh, well. And I'm like, oh, well, no, you got to go. So, the, but like, but guess what? They have plenty of money. So their runway is practically infinite. And they're just, they don't feel any sense of urgency. And they're going to miss this moment. There's one of these magical moments in business where you have the right, right kind of product for the right world. You know, imagine how incredible it must be to be at a place like Zoom right now where the whole world is standardizing on your platform. If you haven't shipped, uh, you can't have those opportunities. So if you, so people call me and they say, uh, how do I get my team on board with going fast? They want to go slow. And I was just coach. I was just coaching a team through this right now. I, I was a landing page. They want to run an experiment, want to see if customers want it. 
And it was a question, should we get the landing page out today or should we wait another day and make it even more perfect? And I was like, first of all, who are you talking to? What do you think I'm going to say? Yeah, I'm going to be the wait. You, why, why even ask me the question? No, I'm not going to say wait. What was the last time anyone heard me say wait? Yeah, God, delay. That's great. No, we got to go fast. And so I was like, what is the thing? What are you worried about? They were like, well, what if people overwhelm our service tomorrow? Because we haven't put these disclaimers on the website. I was like, that would be a great problem. They had a phone number on the site. And they were like, well, what if people call the number in overwhelming demand? Well, we have to get that perfect. And they're like, well, therefore, we have to take the number off the site, but therefore, it's going to take an extra hour to redo the site. Therefore, we can't even launch it because it doesn't make sense without the number. And I was like, guys, no one's going to call the number tomorrow. And if they do, that would be great. It's okay. And it just, you know, in a crisis, you can kind of push that kind of stuff through in a way that is hard in the normal times. But now go back to theory. Why should it be different in a crisis? If something is waste, pure waste, why would you ever do it? And this is actually the origin of the build, measure, learn feedback loop. It's just whatever spending or resources you put against truly learning what is necessary to turn your ideas into reality and test if they're the right ones. That energy is valuable activity and everything else is waste in good times and bad. And it's just in a crisis, I think we have the discipline and the urgency to really look critically at our expenses and say, you know what, are these fancy office chairs helping us learn faster? If they are, that's great. But if not, then why did we ever have them in the first place? And you'll meet, there'll be people on your team where you say, wait a minute, does this person really help us ship tests faster or not? And that's the hard, those are the hard moments when you realize you've kind of gone astray from the, for the right principles in the first place. And now the crisis is revealing that mistake. But still, respect for the truth means acknowledge your mistake, you know, pat yourself on the back for at least admitting it now, better late than never, and take action, don't wait. So um, just for as a little side note for people wondering about the podcast, I think a lot of people, you know, the, I, it's a lot of people to ask me, like, should I start a podcast? Should I start a podcast, et cetera? And for me, um, it's along with Eric, Eric, you know, Eric is saying, I just emailed 30 people I wanted to have on like four of them responded saying yes. And like, that was the start of the podcast. It wasn't even no landing page, no anything. It's just these things, especially in these times where if you just put in the effort and you, and you crank it up a little bit, you know, you'll, you'll find something. And what you're saying, Eric, is that this isn't just doing it to do it. This is to increase revenue so you can decrease the chances of laying off your staff, right? This isn't just to do it, right? Isn't this as a counteract? So like, instead of reducing costs, this is raising revenue. That's right. And in a crisis, people are cutting back on their spending in so many ways. Like the macroeconomic reality of depressions is that my spending is your revenue and vice versa. So if everyone cuts back on their spending, everyone's revenue contracts, then everyone cuts back on their spending more. And it's actually a vicious cycle that the whole economy can get into. And uh, if you've never studied depression economics, uh, it's, it's disturbing, but that's, you know, that, that requires government action. The flip side of everyone trying to save money is products that help people save money are all of a sudden a lot more valuable today than they were before. So maybe that's the kind of pivot you have to make. Maybe you were trying to uh, help people with a nice to have problem and now you can help them with an urgent problem. Uh, instead. And so, you know, again, it all comes back to people first. If you haven't called every partner of yours and just ask them how they're doing, then shame on you. If you haven't called every customer that you can, like get them on the phone, just call customers. And you're like, hi, I want to, I heard it's, it's a crisis. We're all in the same crisis together. I just want to see how you're doing. Uh, 
give yourself the opportunity to have those conversations. And in the course of those conversations, you'll probably learn a ton about what your customers actually need. Maybe not what they told you they needed before, but now there's something new that you can do. You can jump into action and try to find uh, new sources of revenue, new ways to keep your company afloat. And you just, you owe it to yourself and to your team to try that before you jump straight to layoffs. Uh, don't delude yourself. Don't let it go on for months, but I think a week or two, most people can afford uh, to do. And be honest with your team. It's very motivating, actually, to say, look, we are really committed to making this work, to making it work for all of us. We will do everything we can to avoid layoffs. But in order for that to work, here's what we have to do. Here's the bar we would have to hit to raise money. Here's the bar we would have to hit to reach breakeven. And we are all in to make that, to make that a reality. And not everybody will make it. You know, companies are going to fail. And... Having your company fail is not the worst thing that can happen to you. And I hope the crisis at least helps people clarify that, that there are, there are higher stakes and more important things. And listen, maybe you know, there's going to be a government relief bill, uh, it either has passed or is about to pass, that will provide uh, more extensive unemployment insurance uh, coverage and will provide benefits to companies that don't lay their employees off. So if you're not uh, fluent on all that stuff, you should, you should take a look if you're a founder. But you know, again, maybe when your company fails, you'll be on unemployment insurance for the first time in your life. And that would normally be a humiliating experience, but that will actually allow you to work on uh, COVID relief efforts full time. That's some of the best networking in the whole world to be in the trenches with other incredible people trying to solve the problem. And maybe that will ultimately, uh, you know, not only be personally satisfying and make you feel like you're doing the morally right thing, maybe that will also create business opportunities for you in the future. So even if the worst happens, it's not the worst. Right. The worst is someone you love, uh, you know, falling ill to this virus. The worst is because uh, of the humanitarian uh, disaster that's befalling those who are less privileged than we are. That's the crisis. Those are the people who are hardest hit. We who are business leaders are enormously privileged to even be in this position. We can't be feeling sorry for ourselves. We got to be in action, helping those who really need it. And for my final question, it might lead to one or two more, but for the final category, um, yeah, the final question is you've got a lot of people who, you know, let's say they have jobs and they're secure, but they're entrepreneurial minded people and they want to work on COVID projects. They want to help. They want to contribute. Um, can you share some of maybe the opportunities that you feel like are out there that someone could work on or how someone can plug in to ways to help in a, mean, in a meaningful way if they know they have skills, but they don't know exactly how to apply those skills to help, uh, to help the overall, overall solution? Yeah, I love that question. And in fact, this is another way, place where startup people and, and small companies and Series A people actually have a big advantage over a lot of big company people who are like caught up in their company's crisis response. Like I know a lot of, of startup people whose business is not that severely impacted and they actually have time to give. And certainly anybody who's in a secure job uh, has an obligation now to be of service. And again, take care of yourself and your family and your immediate team. Like, you know, don't, don't skip any steps here because if you're off doing relief efforts, uh, but you know, because like I know somebody who um, decided that they have to keep working on their business because um, you know, if they can't work from home full time because their business, you know, would be good for their business. And so they're like not, they're breaking quarantine basically to um, spend some time in the office in order to keep their business going. And I was just like, talk about short-term, long-term mistake here. You know, yeah, that could, that might pay off, but the risk you're taking is like, if you have a family member who falls ill, then you're not going to have any time for your business. It's going to be far worse, even for your business to break quarantine, Never mind the like social consequences of not taking social distancing seriously. So, so be careful here. 
um, I've been incredibly inspired by the just immediate onrush of private sector actors to volunteer uh, and help with the crisis. It's been a, a really beautiful thing to watch up close. It's sad that it's necessary, but uh, it is necessary. And we have in this country anyway, a absolute like unbelievable dereliction of duty at the national leadership level to pursue the steps that are needed and it's fallen to business and to private actors to step into the gaps in a way that, I mean, it just makes me ill to think about. But the flip side of that is people are rallying to the cause. So the first thing is don't, don't necessarily start a new initiative. Like right now, um, there's a lot of, there's like five initiatives being started a day. Uh, do your homework, figure out if there's already something that you can latch onto. Be a joiner. This is a startup. People are not always the best at this. We like to found things, start things. I'm guilty of this myself. Um, try to join, try to coordinate, try to um, be of service to those who need it. This is a great time for listening to actual customers to figure out what's happening on the front lines to see how you can help. If you're not sure what problem to work on, if there's not something that's an obvious application of your skills, there are awesome websites like Sam Altman created something called uh, helpwithcovid.com. I have two or three projects on there right now and the steady flow of volunteers coming in from that website has been awesome. So uh, there are great projects on there and you can, uh, you can just choose to volunteer every pro every, excuse me, every initiative in relief efforts needs, needs people who are skilled at getting stuff done. I was about to curse, <laughs> getting stuff done. So, you know, it doesn't really matter your, your day job skill set. If, you, if you're a decent project manager, if you're a product manager, if you're a software developer, if you're a good writer, if you can edit, you know, just try to be of service. I have noticed a lot of volunteers who kind of only have an hour a day to give, and that's kind of challenging. So if you can, like, if you can really be that volunteer that's like, look, I do have a day job, but like I'll be on your Slack 24-7. And I'll just, I'll help out whenever I see something that I can. I'll keep the ball moving. I, I won't drop balls on the floor. Those kinds of volunteers are very, very, very valuable right now. And they have a tendency to kind of rise up through the ranks of these ad hoc coalitions uh, pretty, pretty fast. Um, if people are interested in specific issues, you know, I was working on, um, until a couple of days ago, working much, pretty much on the school closures issue. So um, there's been this enormous people who have become involuntary homeschoolers. And I know something about that. So I've been trying to help uh, organize relief efforts for parents and families. There's a hotline. There's a, a lot of resources. It's all on schoolclosures.org. We have probably 85 volunteers now uh, working on that and just doing amazing things. Definitely always could use, could use more help. And that's a nice problem because it's super tractable. It's 100% solvable. It's intense. But, um, you know, and, and we've moved beyond just like distance education. And there's like people who can't get food because they used the food schools are used for food distribution and a bunch of other humanitarian purposes that are now not functioning. So that's been um, very heartening to see people work on that. And then more recently, I've been working on the issue of personal protective equipment for frontline medical uh, responders. We have a site up called ppecoalition.com where we're trying to organize all of the different groups that are trying to respond to this crisis. And it's a huge detailed multifaceted disaster that I'm sure if you have a friend or family who works in the medical system, we are all getting these heart-wrenching posts on social media and emails begging for supplies and help. So um, if you want to lend a hand with that, could really use uh, all hands on deck. But there's people working on the cure. There's people sewing masks in their basement. There's people 3D printing supplies that are needed. It's been an incredible array of uh, all hands on deck attitude. And I think if you want to be one of those hands, I strongly encourage you to get involved. It's, it's both morally the right thing to do. It's extremely personally rewarding. And like I said, there are, there could be 
career or business benefits to. All right. And to finish it out with a really quick, quick question, quick answer, um, would love to hear some good news from you. And I can share one too, um, you know, that's happened in the last week. Um, Because although there's all these hard things that are going on in life, I think it's important to remember the good stuff too. So what's, uh, what's something good that's happened for you or with you, you know, in the last week or so? Oh, I have so many inspiring stories. I mean, it's just been a very surreal thing. You know, I've been on the phone with the government and with aid or agencies and the Pentagon and all kinds of folks, like while I'm making waffles for my kids, you know, at the same time. And it's been very surreal to be domestically uh, engaged and globally engaged at the same time. I'll just tell a story from today. I was talking to um, one of the companies that has really stepped into the breach to help get medical supplies to this country. They're a logistics and shipping company. And they called me. I, don't, I, you know, I just feel so, so lucky that I happened to choose me to call. And they're like, we have a pallet of supplies on a loading dock in China. We have four hours to buy them or someone else is going to get them. And we're trying to find someone who can act as the kind of fiscal sponsor, buy the supplies, get them to a hospital that needs them. Can you help with that? And it just so happens that like now that I've spent a couple of days in this, in this community, I've met the people who are working on every aspect of the problem. So I said, yeah, I think I know the foundation that can help you. And I'm pretty sure they'll, they'll answer my call. So let's get on a three-way call right now. And, you know, I got the person with the logistics company and the person from the foundation on the phone. I didn't have to do anything. I just said, listen, you should meet each other. And the person was like, well, we've already committed most of our dry powder. I don't know that we can afford these supplies. And the other person was like, listen, we need, we'll eventually need $3 million, but we just need $1 million right now. And the guy was like, oh, you only need $3 million? Oh, never mind. Yeah, we can, we, it's, we can easily cover that. That's no problem. Like, but boom, boom, boom. And like, we did a transaction right there on the spot. And more importantly, like, so of course those supplies are going to get somewhere, but much more important, of course, is now they've made a new connection and can probably do that uh, many, many more times. So if you multiply that kind of serendipity and that kind of working together across the whole economy, there's, there's millions of people now making a difference in ways large and small. And I just, you know, I take comfort in that even as I get exposed to the, the really dark truths about the situation that we're in. All right. We will end on that. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and sharing your perspective on all of this and tips and solutions for early stage startup founders and beyond. Keep doing what you're doing. And hopefully um, soon this will all come to an end. So thanks again for coming on, Eric. No, God willing. That would be, that'd be amazing. Thanks for, uh, thanks for bringing this to, uh, to this community. I think we as entrepreneurs have a lot, have a very important role to play in the crisis. And don't forget, a lot of the greatest companies were started in crises and depressions. So um, once we get past the humanitarian thing, there's also uh, an immense amount of opportunity to be had in the rebuilding of our country, of our civic society, and entrepreneurs will have to lead the way. So uh, I wish all of you luck. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're practicing social distancing and uh, hope we come out of this stronger uh, in the ways that we can.